Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my great friend and great producer, Max Kerman. Max, how's it going? I don't think I'm great at either of those things, though, but I appreciate the compliment. You're being modest, Max. Yeah. We're also here with Shane. Yo, yo. <laughs> that was a weird shot. I don't know why I did that. I pumped your tires and then just went to Shane. Our fantastic and remarkably funny... <laughs> Pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. Shane, what's going on with you? I don't think I'm that fantastic. Remarkably <laughs> You're being too modest. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, this is kind of a, I feel like this is a, a, a bit of a, a different episode because we're recording this a bit in advance of Max. You're leaving for Europe. Yeah, we're trying to bank a few before I go to the UK. We're trying to bank a few. Today on the show, we have Judah and the Lion, uh, who are an extremely popular band. They're going to be the- They're on the up and up. They're on the up and up, and we had a great conversation with them, which we're going to get to in a bit, because also on the show, uh, we have a young man named Andrew Balcom, who is a author who wrote a book called Evenings and Weekends, Five Years in Hamilton Music, 2006 to 2011, uh, and it's a pretty interesting book. We'll talk about him in one second, but before that, guys, what's been going on in your lives? Uh, it's been a busy week for me. We put out, uh, People's Champ, our, our brand new single. Congrats. I know, so, man. That uh, shit's everywhere. You guys got like a billboard in Young and Yeah, Dundas. we got a billboard. So that's been a fun exercise, uh, dig into. Uh, but yeah, we just had Andrew here and Andrew is, and you'll hear in the interview, he's an old friend of ours. Like I met him in 2005. He was, uh, working at the McMaster Silhouette. He was maybe a year or two ahead of me in school. Really nice guy. As you'll hear, he spent some time with the band on the road when we went to America for the first time. But the whole conversation, it got me thinking uh, about this idea of looking at your past. And I'm kind of curious how you guys feel about looking back. Because I can tell you, you know, like, for instance, this is the 10-year anniversary of Jackson Square, our first record. And people, a few people have asked, are you going to do an anniversary show or or a tour? Are you going to reissue it? That's a good question. And I have zero interest in talking about that record. Like, I'm way more interested in things I'm actually doing today. Mm -hmm. And talking about those things and thinking about those things. And I have a hard time, like, looking back. I don't like li- really even listening to that record. I, I, I'm proud of it, but I don't care to listen to it. I don't like looking at those old photos. I hate looking at those photos. I just, like, I'm not interested in looking back. And I wonder how you guys feel about your life and, and reexamining the past. Well, I have a question for you about that. And I would, I would ask anybody, like one of our guests on the show this, when you mention that, looking back, you're only interested in talking about what's current or going forward in your creative life, let's say. Mm-hmm. How much of a responsibility do you have as an artist? Because here's the thing. Those people that want that, it's because they connect with that record. It means sure. something to them from their past and something entirely different than what it means to you as the creator of it and their experience. How much do you as an artist owe to the fans? Or do you, is it, is it, do you owe them nothing? I don't think I don't think I owe them anything. I mean, maybe the time will come where it makes sense to, you know, to shed some light on it. But for now, it's like I don't know that record exists and people can listen to it. If anybody has any questions, I guess I'll answer. But I don't really. I'm way more interested in the moment that I'm living in right now and thinking about the future than I am looking at the past. Like fan interest or desire wouldn't be a catalyst for you to revisit it. I don't think so. You'd revisit it if you wanted to. Yeah. You've got there. Not yeah. just because it's an arbitrary, oh, it's 10 years, whatever. No, I don't care about that, yeah. Interesting. What about you, Shane? What do you think? Do you, do you get nostalgic looking back on stuff? Do you for sure, happy? yeah. But I, I also get very embarrassed. Yeah. Because I've never really done anything that I'm super proud of. And like when I, when I uh, this happens to me quite a bit when I'm walking around Hamilton. Recently, I was at a restaurant and the, the owner I went to, to high school with and he was like, oh, you got to send me a clip of this documentary you made from high school. And I made this documentary about uh, my 
mom's cheating boyfriend on her. And it was like, people loved it. Everyone went nuts about it. That's how I did, like, found out about exactly. it in high school. Like, that's how, that was my first uh, introduction to Shane. And I was blown mm-hmm. away. Like, I, yeah, like, I, I think I was just Have we talked about this on the pod? We might have. Possibly. But, like, but anyway, it was a like, fascinating story. It was a bold piece of work mm-hmm. for, like, a 17-year-old. It was, but now I'm, um, I'm just, I feel like I'm so much better at doing stuff and can be funnier without maybe doing something so shocking or clickbaity as like a mom crying because back then you didn't see shit like that you didn't have the internet so it was kind of uh groundbreaking in a way just because of the of the lack of real things people got to see and this was like before reality tv blew up and there was actually a show called cheaters that came out uh, two years after i made that but now i feel like i'm so much not smarter, but wiser nowadays with the, my decisions and the things I do and emails I send or texts I send. Whereas anything from like beyond two years ago, I'm humiliated by it. Yeah. I mean, and especially like I used to have long blonde hair, the way I looked, everything, like <laughs> everything. Even six months ago, I'm embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, what, what, what do you feel? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it's interesting because we, we obviously are having, we're going to talk to Andrew in a couple minutes about this book he wrote about kind of a, a pretty like pivotal point in our lives as bands guys in bands in Hamilton at the time um in a kind of formative era uh so like I guess we don't really talk about my band a lot on this pod but like I was like in a band we were signed to Universal Music like we you know we we started in Hamilton we got our record all that stuff we had a little bit of a following um and sometimes people will be like oh do you like ever want to like get out there or like make music. And the truth is I don't like, I, I kind of what you were saying about looking back in Jackson square is like, I'm super proud of everything we did. And that was such a fun time. But I, it's also, I also remember like, it was very hard. There's nothing worse than showing up to a gig and like, are there a are hundred people going to show up or 50 people going to show up? Or am I playing to 10 people? All of those feelings as you sort of like go along or like the idea of like looking at other bands and being like, why are they getting something? We're not like, it's a weird, as you know, career to sort of try to navigate because it's weird to marry business and creative in that sense. Yeah. I always found it very difficult. So looking back, um, I don't spend a lot of time, but when I do, there is like a tinge of like, cause nostalgia is kind of mildly painful in a weird way. Cause, it, yeah, it is painful because it's gone. Right. Uh-huh. But I, I tend, and I might be lifting that from Mad Men or something, but it's like, so when I look back on like those songs or I see a video or somebody brings it up, I like, I, I enjoy it. Cause I'm like, Oh man, that was really funny. And as I was reading Andrew's book specifically, you know, the stuff about us, it made me laugh and it made me happy. Cause I'm like, fuck yeah, we did that. That was really fun. And I love those guys from the band, Sean and Brody and Ted and of course my brother, but it also was weirdly like, Oh yeah. Like that man, like I lived a whole other life in a weird way. And it, it, it kind of made, put me in a weird thing. Like where it's like, I think I'm better when I'm focusing on what's ahead. What are we doing tomorrow? What's this? We're working on this pod. We're working on this. It's like, it doesn't do me much good then to look back in that sense, other than to visit it for like a quick, ha, that was hilarious. Sure. But got to keep it moving. Okay. Which leads me to my next question. Um, I always think it's somewhat interesting when people, uh, especially rock guys, like uh, write autobiographies or are really good at like taking meticulous uh, journals or record keeping. And I know some people do journals just to because it's therapeutic and that's great. But I cannot imagine writing a story, like writing a book about my life. Not like even if my life, because my life is not particularly interesting, but even if my life was really interesting, I just can't imagine wanting to go through those old records and and then put it, but I just feel like the whole thing would be so painful. Like I, I, I there was a period in high school 
Uh, I was inspired by this book called Ball Four by Jim Bowden, who was a relief pitcher on like the 1972 Seattle whatever. He was a baseball player, and he and it's a book about his like year in the life of a, of a pitcher. And I was really inspired by that, and so I did about seven days of my volleyball team in grade ten, <laughs> <laughs> and it's somewhere, and it's like so embarrassing. Like, like I, you did a write up? No, like I wrote in a journal nice. about like uh, literally that was the extent of my record keeping is like six days on the volleyball team. <laughs> And, and anything I, crazy happened? No. no. Serena looked really hot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the journal went deep, man. Yeah. And but I can't imagine going through that again. Could could you guys ever would, would it be too painful or would that be an exciting thing? Cuz clearly it's exciting to some people. Like I'm friends with Frank Turner and he's put out a book about his life and well, people love it and and he likes it and that's awesome, but I just couldn't do it. If you as you go through, okay, so here's the thing. Like, obviously, we all have, like, pretty cool jobs, and we're lucky enough to work in entertainment and all this stuff. And it's like, we all have so many stories that we can tell over beers. You know, when I meet a new group of people, I'm like, sweet, none of these people have heard my story that Danica <laughs> is fucking tired of. But it's like, we've crossed paths with so many sort of interesting, accomplished people that there's just so many sort of stories or, like, been in funny situations that I think these people that write the books— they're fascinating because it's like, I haven't heard that story. Mm-hmm. Like if Noel Gallagher writes a book and he tells the story about the time Liam uh, offended Paul McCartney, I'm eating that shit up. But maybe to Noel, it's like, oh, this is just my life. Yeah. No, I, well, I, I think I love retelling funny stories, but the stuff that's really personal, I don't, I, oh, interesting. I, you know what I'm saying? It's like the stuff that's like, you know, something tragic happened or like a breakup or just like really intimate mm-hmm. feelings. Yeah. That stuff would be hard to look at again. What do you think, Shane? I, I always do a thing where uh, if I'm filming something uh, on my phone or whatever, and then it's like, your phone's too full. You have to delete this. I have trouble letting go of that footage because I have this weird idea that one day a documentary is going to be made about sure. my life. And th- the director of this doc is really going to want this footage. So <laughs> Mark Myers? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the guy I would pick, actually. Uh, but it's like, oh, I better email this to myself, even though it's the most innocuous bullshit. So I am very nostalgic and very, like, hoardery with things and items of my life. I have trouble letting go, even if I feel like I'm never going to use them or they're going to be used. But I know I don't have the patience or wherewithal to do anything with that stuff. Uh-huh. Like I'd need the the best ghostwriter to help me with this book. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm an in, impatient person. Mm-hmm. So no, just for that, I would get a like, fuck, this is an uh, impossible homework assignment on my hands. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What would your book be called, Mike? And Shane, you think about this too. Oh. The life story of Mike Veerman. Oh, man. Uh, I wish I had a clever... I'm trying to... Well, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm in that thing where it's like, this has kind of been a serious conversation. So I was like, all the joke answers went through my head. Sorry, what I would know. yours be called, Shane? This isn't a funny answer. And, uh, the, and this just came to my head. And it's not good. And I would never call it this. But I was going to say serious about comedy. And uh-huh. that was... Um, I remember uh, Hamilton Spectre did an article on me one, one time. And that was the headline. They serious used. about comedy. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good title. Okay, so uh, so for our listeners, we're going to get to this conversation with a uh, local Hamilton dude and former uh, Mac alumni, along with Max, uh, to talk about his book, which, Max, you're actually on the cover of. I'm on the cover. That's Mike right. D. took the photo, actually. There you go. Yeah. Uh, was the photo just for the book? No, it was just a photo of like Mike D. But see, this is the thing. What we're talking about is, like, even the photo of me, which I think at the time I liked, I now think, like, I don't like the angle of it, and I think I look chubby in it or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I... I even look look back on like the photo. That's such a nice photo. I'm like, ah. <laughs> I was gonna say, compared to like three weeks ago, you're chubby. You're constantly uh, fading away, Max. In a <laughs> good like, way. That's like compliment. The Benjamin Button of weight. Hey, you know what? Um, Lauren and I <laughs> are starting uh, are doing this thing where it's uh, 
We're only eating in an eight-hour window. Oh, yeah. Dan Hamilton fasting. Yeah, yeah. heard about this. Yeah, I like it. It seems to be going okay. All right. Well, another little health tip for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, so for our listeners, we're going to get to Andrew. And as you guys know, uh, you've been listening to us now for almost 100 episodes. Um We've all known each other for over a decade now, actually, which is kind of crazy when you think Have about it. Have I known you for a decade? I think so, man. Yeah, about, just about. Absolutely. Yeah. We're in 2018, man. Damn. So anyway, this conversation with Andrew is kind of interesting because it is a, a stroll down memory lane for when we were all sort of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting our sea legs in bands and anything seemed possible. And uh, Almost 16 years for you and I, Mike. I know, Shane. Okay. Oh, and I meant that in like a, I know, it's great. Right. Not like a, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean like, I know, it's great. Man, we've been loose today, boys. Oh, man. I'm in a weird, weird state today. I, I know. You're getting, you're yeah. like talking about the pain of nostalgia. Yeah. Sorry, I guess. Don't apologize, Max. We're here for you, man. Thanks. We're going to miss you when you're on the road, but you're going to call in? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Okay. So let's get to Andrew, and then we're going to come back for a little bit after that and set up Judah and the Lion. Let's get to Andrew. All right. We are sitting here with Andrew Welcome. Hello. Welcome to Toronto. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to be here. Uh, I got to say, so for, we've been meaning you having you on for like a long time now. It's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while. Like, well, you guys blew up though, right? Like Pod <laughs> got out of control. No, not quite, but yeah. we're trying. <laughs> I like that Still, narrative. It's we're good. hoping this is the one that does yeah. it. Uh, but yeah, because we were messaging because you have this great book out that obviously like everybody in our Hamilton music scene knows you wrote. Obviously, Max's band is there. Yeah. Is in there. My former band is in there. Yes. And for anybody that uh, is listening, obviously the book is called Evenings and Weekends, Five Years in Hamilton Music, 2006 to 2011. That's it. And for our listeners, we've, I've known Andrew from McMaster days when he was the editor of the McMaster Silhouette. Yeah, we go back, and for sure. Was it was the arts editor or the full editor? I was the arts editor at first and then managing editor to Damn. round it out. Yeah. And then at one of our early U.S. tours, Andrew hit the road with us. I did. I think it was the first U.S. The tour. first U.S. Actually, tour. Yeah. And he did a whole, like, it was a big spread in The Spectator yeah. about what it means to be a Canadian band going to America and trying to figure out. And I remember really loving the piece. And I've always Thank loved you. your writing. Thank and you. And so when I found out that, you know, he had this whole book on the Hamilton music scene, I was uh, very intrigued because it's like, you know, uh, examining characters that we see to this day, like every weekend, right? Totally, yeah. And you, for sure, were very gracious with your time. And I spoke to your brother quite extensively. My brother, Greg. I, yeah, read, Greg. I read his quotes in the book. Did you? Yeah. In fact, you describe uh, Greg. I had a quote here where you said about Greg, you guys met at the Mulberry Coffee House in January 2012. You described Greg as handsome and charming. He has the clean-cut look of a teen heartthrob plucked from the pages of Tiger Beat magazine. <laughs> I think it's apt. He's a good-looking guy. <laughs> Let's just say you did this interview a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I, that did make me laugh. I mean, we're going to get to some of the stuff from the book because yeah. I, I was going through it leading up to this. And I know Shane actually has a copy. Of course. Yeah. My brother has a copy. Somehow I never, no copy got to me. I think there's copies floating around Hamilton too. I'm going to go like, buy one. So, okay. Awesome. Thank you. Totally unrelated to Sean Dawson, who was also in our band, yeah. Pumps, who you, you mentioned in the book, uh, messaged me out of the blue last night. Like all of us, the band guys, he grabbed your book in, uh, in like a record store and he started like thumbing through it, he sent like a funny passage that you'd written about us. And so he bought it on the spot. So. Right on. Awesome. I'm just going to go back a second here though. He went on tour with you guys. Andrew went on tour yeah, with Yeah, for else? like a, three, about four a days. Yeah. A week, yeah. Like Max, in America. What yeah. was it like having a, jur- a, ju- a journalist embedded with your tour? It was pretty cool. Did I you feel like it was almost famous? Kind of, a little bit, but it's very lame compared to Almost Famous. When I got back to the Spec Newsroom after that tour, that's what everyone called me. Like, that was my nickname for the rest of that. They called me Almost Famous. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) So talk about, uh, 
how long it took to write the book and the impetus for wanting to do it. And yeah, like just the whole journey. Cause, cause you know, we all have jobs where it's like, we kind of get to see our product pretty quickly. Like yep. whether you guys cut promos or we do this podcast yeah. or we go on tour and we get kind of get to see, I always think writing a book would be a nightmare uh, because it takes so long and it's a whole different craft. Talk about that. It took about five years from when I put the first words down in the first chapter to when it was published. Part of that due to the fact that I had a full-time job. I still do. The entire time I was working at McMaster University mm-hmm. doing communications. So I literally was working on this project evenings and weekends. So it was just whatever time I could carve out to meet people to do interviews or transcribe interviews or put copy together. It was a labor of love for a long time. And like half that time, I didn't even have a publisher on board yet. So it took a lot of like self-determination to keep pushing forward with it. And just work without sort of like, like you said, there's no uh, guaranteed outcome. If it came to it, would you just like put it out yourself? I think I was pretty hell-bent on having it come out one way or another. I really wanted the validation of having a publisher pick it up to put it out just for sort of like that feather in my cap, so to speak. But I think I had put enough work into it and I wanted other people to read it enough that I would have tried to just go self-publishing route as well. But I was very fortunate to have a publisher come on board about halfway through. Yeah. Well, and what, in terms of the, because you talked to so many different bands, go through the bands that are sort of featured in, in the book. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's a laundry but... list. It's pretty much anyone from any genre you can think of active, like sort of mid 2000s to 2011. They're in there. So I... Alexis on Fire, Junior Boys, Caribou, who, Arkells, San Young Sebastian, Rival, Young Sebastian, Rival. Yeah. All kinds of different stuff. Like a lot of underground stuff. Motem is in there. There's a lot of hardcore music. Uh, the guys that ran um, Motown Wednesdays at Club Absinthe are in there. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Gurman and Chris McNamee are in there. I wanted to focus as well a lot on the DJ Sure. Culture in Hamilton, the club scene that kind of blew up around that time. You know who's responsible for that club scene? The Nut. The Nut. The, the, nut? Nut, the okay. nut would claim to be responsible. Yeah. Adam, Burchill. Okay, Adam Burchill, who what? appears yeah. on this podcast yes, as I know the Nut. Yeah. MC Uncle Buck. In, in his, can, I, can I say that? Yeah. MC Uncle Buck. I'm never sure because I know he he is sort of a Batman type figure on this podcast. I know his, <laughs> his identity is not... Uh, possible to reveal perhaps, yeah. but, we won't uh, say his real name but we will call him MC Uncle Buck okay. is, MC Uncle did Buck. you interview him for the book I did not no but I interviewed <laughs> he would have some uh, good stories actually I, what I tried to do is grab one or two people from each scene or each band it, it would have taken forever to interview like it would have been a five volume book if I spoke totally. to anyone and everyone but yeah that DJ like subculture within Hamilton at the time I really wanted to drive that home in the narrative as well it was a big part of the scene it was it totally was yeah like i you, saw your band at absinthe a bunch of times like the upstairs you guys would play upstairs oh yeah, yeah, when yeah. Were, like djs like going on. pumps or racket uh pumps yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. those were fun times yeah like, it, it really was at that time like uh, um you know i think you did a really good job just reading sort of like um your pro like your opening to the book like setting the scene with hamilton historically yeah and then getting into sort of what those years were like which like for a lot of us like we were just kicking around town, getting drunk and playing shows. And yeah. it was one of the funnest times. And a lot of cool shit came out of that time. And I think that your book totally captures Did that. you feel at the time, like being an active participant in that scene as a front man of a band, that there was something special going on? Like, did you have, were you aware of that? Like seeing what your peers were up to at the time and I, what you guys were doing? It's a good question because reading it, I almost felt like I, I in some ways, missed out. Meaning like, I knew that with the group with, the group that I was in was special. I really loved my brother and the Dawson's and Ted and, 
our gang of friends, like Shane and all these guys, like I knew that was special to me, but I was kind of a little bit ignorant to everything. I knew our, I was aware of our Kells and I was like, but and Young Rival and bands that we'd play with, but I wasn't necessarily like, wow, this, something special is happening here. I was just more like, is this an open bar? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And you know, the important but that was questions. kind of the default mindset. In Honestly. Yeah. So, but it was like looking back now, I'm like, fuck, like there's a lot of really talented and cool people. And it. it was just fun. Like, I just thought it was fun when I was in it. I didn't think about it in a larger, larger sense. Did you, Max? Uh, not in the moment because you just know what you know. But now looking back, you know, especially when Arkells do press and they talk about sort of the early years, I always say we're really lucky to grow up in the golden era of indie rock. It really like that sort of early 2000s to 2008, 2009. It's like the produced like Broken Social Scene, yeah. Stars, Arcade Fire, The Constantines, Winter Sleep, all these bands that would come and play, you know, the Casbah or the Underground to 300 people. And it really felt like a scene. And I know I'm sounding like an old guy here, and I want to ask you how you feel about this. But, it, like, that doesn't quite exist. Like, rock and roll, no one really gives a shit about indie rock and roll. I just think it's much harder to be a rock band in 2018. If you're, like, a 17-year-old kid, it's, like, it's there's, I don't, I don't know. Is there a scene, like, to the same degree as there was back then, would you say? I don't know. It is hard to say because I will be 34 this year, and I definitely am not as plugged into what is like underground and fresh or what people who are maybe half my age would think so in Hamilton right now. I would like to think they're still just as active of a scene. I feel like guitar rock music. Guitar rock music. I, I don't know. I, I get the sense that it's just a lot more experimental, ambient, electronic music. People like, you know, making beats in their house and having their friends rap over top or put stuff over top. Yeah. And, like what's your sense? I mean, yeah, that, that, that's the impression I get. It's yeah. like more like rock and roll. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's bands that are still doing it, like the Dirty Nil and stuff like that, yeah. who are uh, younger, and there's definitely a scene around that. But yeah, just comp- it just seemed like ten years ago there was like some of the indie rock guys, and then there's like the 905 like hardcore stuff, and there was like there's the kind of the, like the slow hand Motowns. There's like kind of like a weirder and uh, more experimental. Yeah, I don't know. It just it, it's different. It's not. It's not better or worse, but it just it definitely feels different than it I was. Mean, I mean, I can't speak to this firsthand, but I would imagine if you're a young person getting into music right now in 2018 as a teenager, you might see the easiest path to success to be a just, DJ. Just yeah, like with make, a laptop. Make some music on your computer. Put it online. It's yeah. instantly available to anyone. Versus. How do I find a promoter? Can we play at this bar? Should I jump in a van and spend 18 months trying to become successful in a rock band? You, you know what I'm saying? You oh, might, yeah. You that's... might think this is the easier or the it, path of least resistance to success. It feels antiquated even now, and it's not that far in the past at all. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, of course, as I was going through the, uh, the book that you sent me, um, I was jumping to the different parts that involved uh, my band. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> As you should. Uh, I actually also, before we get to that, I did re- I li- enjoyed you meeting Max the first time and how you described uh, University Max. Oh, I don't want to see. I don't want to see. Remind me. Yeah. Uh, it was Simon who first introduced me to Max Kerman. Simon Toy. Simon Toy. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Uh, who first introduced me to Max, a gangly political science student and aspiring singer-songwriter. He was a regular visitor to the paper's crammed basement office, promoting shows and handing out flyers, <laughs> or talking excitedly to anyone who'd listen about his latest batch of songs. <laughs> this is nothing's so changed. changed. Never changed. <laughs> <laughs> Not, literally, nothing has changed. I love that. It's I, like, yeah, if there's like a new demo, I'd be like, hey, Mike, can I come over and show you the new demo awesome. like last week? Yeah. yeah. I, I do vividly recall Simon Toy who played in a band called Cities and Dust. Yeah, they were uh, great. They were fantastic. They're in the book as well. Uh, but Simon at the time was the music editor at the paper. And I vividly remember him saying, 
yeah, this kid Max, he keeps coming around with like, <laughs> you know, telling me about shows and bringing CDs down and flyers and stuff. Oh, and so yeah, like even Simon was like talking you up before you were even talking uh, you up. So yeah, yeah, this is the problem. I have, I have actually have a hard time personally going back and thinking about the, cause I just get so embarrassed. Like I can't, oh. like I can't read yearbooks. Like mm-hmm. somebody posted a picture of me from my grade eight yearbook uh with my quote like on twitter yesterday and i was just like cringing <laughs> i was what was the quote it was it was like i guess my 10 years at ll are over straight goods to what tim said tim was my best friend and i said straight goods to drummer whatever. tim no no oh. it, 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 tim lawrence so it's just like it was just like why did i say straight goods like what the fuck <laughs> it's like, kind of anyway. cool saying though <laughs> I'm glad you yeah. like it, Jay. Giving you the straight goods. Yeah. Like it is it. interesting. It, it interesting thought because as I was reading, you described the scene and sort of being like, man, like, it, wow. Like, I was, so many memories came back. I'm glad to hear you say that. And I wanted to ask you guys too, like, Shane, you were doing a bunch of filming for Pumps, right? I got the quote right here because I, once I saw Shane Cunningham's name in the book, this book really I was, has I looked front, all over for that. This, this <laughs> is Shane. Uh, they're describing the band house. So Brody Dawson, who played guitar in our band, who you interviewed for the book, yeah. says, Our friend Shane Cunningham did a ton of pro bono video work for us. He would buy weird cameras and find them on eBay just so he could film us. He had tons and tons and tons of cool footage of that shit. Uh, and then you say naturally they soon moved into a cramped and scummy band house and nearly killed each other, which is again all true. That was the Kipling Road house. That, we all lived yeah, at Kipling Kip. Street. The yeah, Kip, yeah. baby. Yeah, it was West the four Kip. guys in the band, and then Shane rented the basement. Yeah, and I got Super 8 cameras. I, I bought really cool ones and developed the film and all that. So, yeah. Do you still true. have some of that footage floating around? I do. Yeah. yeah. I have a box full of San Sebastian and Pump rehearsals. And like if, if they ever became successful, which seems, at this point seems unlikely. Hey, man. <laughs> I know. I'm not hope. ruling it out a, a possibility. I'm working on an acoustic record right now. Are you really? No, no. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can barely find time to do this podcast. Uh, so the, the la- so like I said, Sean Dawson had run into your book in a in a record store, yeah. and he started reading it, and he he literally he uh, he screen grabbed this and sent it to everybody in the band. It was really funny because again, like I hadn't read it until we were about to have you on. So, anyways, uh, with ties to the reckless uh, rock stars for hire crew and the underground dance scenes at Club Absinthe and Che, Pumps quickly became regulars at down and out watering holes and sweaty nightclubs in the city's downtown core. If a case of Pabst Blue Ribbon was chilling next to a bottle of Jägermeister, chances are Pumps were nearby. <laughs> With or without their instruments. This is all very true. (laughs) It wasn't long before a large crop of local music fans, including a growing number of beautiful young women, joined the party. So as we (laughs) built our base, I guess. Uh, That is amazing. That's a great excerpt. It was hilarious. And it's the chain. Like, there's literally a text chain with me and the guys in the band where, like, that alone made them all be like, let's get the band back together. (laughs) Get that footage ready. It's happening. (laughs) That's so funny. Oh, man. But just just so many great things. Anybody have any problems with the book? Did anybody go, oh, hey, question. This, this is this is not how I remembered it or I you shouldn't have used Actually, that no. I, oh, I didn't great. get any, yeah, no lawsuits, no legal action. I, I mean, I really wanted to tell an accurate story and be fair and I didn't want to paint, and paint anyone in a bad light. So Greg wasn't upset by his description? Unless he's just like sitting at home seething about it and has it, it, he's, he's waiting to strike. But I, <laughs> I hope not. No, I mean, it, it seemed to get fairly well received and... Uh, it's funny you mentioned like people, you guys having like a text chain about stuff going on in the book. Cause I'll get odd, not odd, but unexpected messages from time to time. Like, you know, Jeremy Weiderman from Monster Truck. He plays yeah. guitar. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I went to high school with John Harvey actually. Okay, right for Monster Truck. Yeah. So Jeremy's father emailed me and was like, 
I saw your book on the dashboard of the monster truck van. I picked it up and I couldn't put it down. And it was so fun to read about my son and all his friends and all this stuff. And it's it like it's neat to see it get passed on through those kind of situations or people just noticing it in you know, bookstores. Or it lives. People, it lives on. Yeah. And this is the thing, like, I think, which is great about writing. I mean, doing any kind of piece of work, whether it's like a song or like a short film or a book, it lives. And so you did it. You, you wrote a fucking book. You know what I mean? And now it will just kind of be there for people to find and people that want a snapshot of that yeah. time in music in Hamilton. That's kind of what I was going for, for sure, was that snapshot thing. Not necessarily thinking like this is going to become a big success or something, but just the notion of someone 20 or 30 or 40 years from now being able to point to it and say, wow, this was pretty cool that this happened in Hamilton at this time period. And there's a lot of great music that came out of that scene. And I hoped it would sort of stand as that kind of a record and keep getting shared in that way. Well, you've documented, like, I mean, as these guys, Arkells and Pointy and Max right now, get bigger and bigger and they've done so well, you really sort of have a record of the origins of the band. Yeah. And to my knowledge, I think it's the first book that has sort of your band's origin story in yeah. it, as far as i'm aware of no so it's the only one yeah yeah um and it's it's interesting because speaking of like how long it took me to put the book together when i started in 2011 like you guys were popular you were a juno winner at that point but i think even in the years between then and now the, the band has become so much more successful and popular and touring the world and um, yeah yeah it's, it's been great to see a lot of acts in the book achieve that kind of success yeah it's totally. true i mean even between you know, 2011 and now, like Monster Truck, right? yeah, like or Dirty Nil or any of these bands. Monster Truck, Dirty Lightfoot, Nil, like Junior a, Boys, Terra, yeah. for sure. Terra was just playing the Juno's Gala. Yeah, she's I know. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the first time you do anything, I'm a big believer that you learn a lot, and it's very. And the first time you do anything, there's a lot of anxiety and stress because you're just trying to figure it out. Sure. What did you learn from this experience, and what would you do differently? I I think I would be able to do it a lot faster this time. Like I think it took me five years. I mentioned, um, I was going at it sort of piecemeal. I think even if I went at a second book, uh, with a full-time job still, I would be a little better at cranking things out faster and maybe doing it in a shorter time frame. I think I just got better as I was going through it in terms of like developing a system where I would do an interview, bang out the transcript, write the copy, know exactly where it was going to go in the book the first time around, it was a lot of figuring out even how to place things within the book and structure the narrative. I had never written anything even close to that length before. So I think I would have a better idea of how to like structure a full narrative arc in a book and do it a lot faster, I'd say. Is there another book on the horizon? I hope so. I'd like to. Yeah. What's it about? <laughs> I, I am in discussions with the management team of a major Canadian singer-songwriter who I can't mention at I that know, moment. About, that's cool. Oh, do, wait, do you, you actually do? know? No, I'm just guessing though. Okay. <laughs> so I, I Jim Cuddy? It's, it, it's Jim Cuddy. No, it's not Jim. <laughs> um, although I would love to interview him. You, see, you did a great job with him. Oh, thanks. Um, it's great. It's a big name and I'd love to do it. I'm just sort of going back and forth with the management at the moment about whether or not it's going to happen. So yeah, fingers crossed. I'd love to do another nonfiction book. If that doesn't pan out, we will see. Who's your favorite uh, band in the book? Oh, great question. See, Shane's going to have know a couple the questions too. I, I love Alexis on Fire, and I'm a big fan particularly of George Pettit, who is a Hamilton guy. Yeah. He's originally from Grimsby, but he's lived in Hamilton for probably pushing 15 years now. And um, yeah, I grew up on their music, and uh, it was a pleasure sitting down with him. He was very forthcoming and, and warm and open. And, and I interviewed him like right after the news came out that Alexis was calling it a career. And I knew he was like 
going through some stuff emotionally with that. And he huh. was still just very pleasant and eager to talk about the band. And, and that was a treat for sure. Cause I love that band. Are there any uh, comedy rap groups that you feel guilty about maybe uh, not interviewing? <laughs> Does a name come to mind? Uh, there is, but I don't want to say it because I wouldn't want anyone to find any of the, the materials. Shane was in a comedy uh, rap group, much like Lonely Island, pre-Lonely Island. Okay. What was the name? Uh, we Can Beep This, Mike? Yeah. Okay. Nice. My, my yeah. brother was in that group too. I'm surprised he didn't bring Rob this Ascula. up. Yeah. You know the Rob Ascula. Uh, bike lock. Yeah. Rob Ascula. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He played keys. Yeah. In that. We played absinthe right a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> when I do the revised, expanded, like t- ten year edition, ten year anniversary edition of the book, we'll go back. I mean, it was tough, you know, honestly, to sort of whittle down who to include, who not to include. I mentioned earlier, it could have been like a five volume. Oh, don't let it make set, you feel right? bad. They played no, like but, three shows. But you're- <laughs> That's not true. We played like at least 12. 12 shows. Did you actually? And one in Buffalo too, to 5,000 people. Wow, we never even Did played in America. Really? Yeah, yeah where, we where had a was, tour bus for one, one day. Where was the Buffalo show? Uh, I, f- I forget what Wild it was Wings? called. What's that? <laughs> Wild Wings. It was at Anchor Bar. No, uh, I forget. You know, uh, Sean Menard kind of, of weaseled his way into saying we were a band from California. And he sent a picture of us with all with long blonde hair. And I have a tattoo on my back of the California flag. So they're like, ah, that, that seems about right. Good enough for us. Yeah. So we went under the guise of we're big in California, so people will come. But it was very weird. And we only had three songs under our belt. And we play, <laughs> played this show. You guys are pretty good at the deception. Because I was listening to the pod, to a couple of the pods on the way in about sneaking into like Juno parties, like yeah. the nut saying he was a member of Arkells and stuff. Just <laughs> yeah, to, like, yeah. Get, yeah. 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 Uh, white lies, you know. They white never, lies. They never hurt anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Just for some free drinks or maybe a show to thousands of people in Buffalo. Yeah. No, no one got hurt. No harm done. No. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find the book? It is available at Chapters, Coles, Indigo, um, pretty much any independent retailer you can buy books at i would very much encourage you to go buy it from an independent retailer if you have the means to amazing and uh mixed media in hamilton still okay? mixed media in hamilton on james street north um yeah a lot of art shops and record shops and stuff dr disc has it as well in hamilton so awesome yeah, it's out there but wait i just have a question oh, about jump in i always ask like when i was younger i would ask this question way more blunt and be like how much money did you make but now as i get older i don't <laughs> i don't ask it as blunt but i am curious just in a general sense of was this like, is this a financial gain for you? Is it like, do you break even? Do you get any profits? Are you a rich man? <laughs> I am not a rich man. Okay. I, I've done, a, I've done well. Yeah. Like it's, I, I definitely came From out, the book. came out in the plus. Yeah. Oh, nice. it's, it's done. Okay. Like it's, it, uh, not enough. Like I'm not paying my mortgage with it. Mm-hmm. Obviously I have a full-time job still, but enough to like, you know, I'll get a check once in a while and I'll buy like a new guitar or something kind of nice. special. Like it's that kind of... How much does new guitar cost? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 60, 70 grand. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, now that Shane has asked the hard hitting questions yeah. that made everybody feel uncomfortable at the table. <laughs> um, thank you, Andrew, so much for coming on. Evenings and weekends, five years in Hamilton music, 2006 to 2011. Uh, we're in the book. Max, you're interviewed in the book, quoted yeah. in the book. If you want to hear about Max as a university student uh, and the origins of him getting God. the band off the ground yeah. and my band and our hard partying ways, it's all in there in the book. It's all in there. And so many great fucking Hamilton yeah. acts. That Monster are- Truck, Jerry Greenspan, Junior Boys. Terry Lightfoot. Terry Lightfoot. Whole game. You name yeah. them, they're in there. They're great. The Reason. Who yeah. else? The Reason. We've, yeah, we've yeah. with The Reason. That's a pretty good rundown. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, young Rival. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on, man, and all the best uh, with the book. If you don't have it, read it. I'm going to buy a copy at an independent outlet, and I'm going to uh, gift it to my father because I think he'd fucking love this book. Right on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure. We are back. Thank you so much to uh, Andrew Balcom for coming on and talking about his book. But now, guys, we've got Judah on the line coming on. Great alternative rock and roll band. Their song was actually playing at opening day when we went to the Jays game, and I texted Judah, and I said, oh, this brought a real smile to my face, playing, playing your music at the Skydome. He got right back, and he said that, that was the highlight of the tour, talking to you guys. So That was really nice of him yeah. to say, and honestly, I was impressed. So these guys come in. You were in for this interview, obviously. Yep. It was a great conversation. Judah's a, a really thoughtful guy, and, and um, all three of them, I felt like, were just really sort of engaged in the conversation. And we, we talked about some like difficult subjects, I think, like as far as religion and what that means for their origins and their band and their fans, which you will hear. But I was also just very impressed with Max. Like right after you're like, eh, let's exchange numbers. Like you guys were fast friends. Yeah. I don't know. You meet a kindred spirit and you want to stay in touch. That's right. Yeah. And then you text them in a Jays game. It is. That's how life works. Yep. You guys want to get to Jude on the line? Let's do it. Let's start this thing. You guys, you're here. You're playing the Phoenix tonight in Toronto? Tonight yeah. in Toronto. It's pretty sweet. I, you mentioned you guys had played before, but opening, right? Yeah, we opened a couple of years ago over at the Phoenix. Um, and like we remember it because it was, it was like, like we were first of three. There's three bands. Who was the tour? It was Matt Carney and a band called Parachute. Okay. And um, Parachute. The, the stage for us that night was... I think maybe one of our smallest, like <laughs> they push you forward. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, we're we're looking forward to having a little bit more room tonight. So be fun. Yeah, yeah. I bet we've been there. The first of three spots. Oh we yeah, did Congos and what's uh, Joy Formidable? Oh cool. And but we were first of three, and Joy Formidable have like a big gong on stage too, <laughs> and, it, and it just like the footprint gets smaller and smaller. That's yeah, tough. you got to make it work. But. When you, it's always funny to watch a progression of a band going from those first to threes and then headlining larger and larger venues. Did you guys find the transition from sort of the stage show in the early days, like you said, first to three, and then going to now much different? Is it a natural evolution? Or are you guys very conscious of stagecraft in general? Yeah, I think those first of three moments when you are tucked up and you don't have space to move, like we're we're very active uh, band on stage, kind of try to be interactive with our show. And um, but those those shows where you literally your only movement is like up and down because if you move back, then you're like, <laughs> you know, hitting the kick drum or something. Yeah, um, those are the moments that if you can still kind of captivate an audience or um, connect with them, and you don't have much space, it it makes you use the space a little bit more when you do have it. So I think. Um, it's been like a gradual process for us, but, uh, and I think also opening and you, you know, this as, as well as like, you, you kind of like still stuff from the headliners. Like, Oh, that was cool. That really worked. I'm going to do that. Um, and we, we've been fortunate enough to be out with some really cool bands and different bands like Incubus and Jimmy world this last year. And then 21 pilots and John Billion and, um, learning, take, taking stuff from, from them kind of has helped us kind of evolve into what our show is as well. Yeah, because everybody's sort of doing it a different way, but ultimately you're all doing the same thing, but it's like the different way to cook the meal, right, if you will, yeah. metaphorically. Um, we had Florida Georgia Lion on here, and nice. uh, <laughs> those guys went to Belmont. And you guys. Did everybody go to Belmont? the store there. Yes. Yeah. So what's the deal with that school? And you played baseball as well, right? Yeah. So Were you on the same team? Well, so, uh, so BK was a, a redshirt senior when I was a senior in high school. Okay. Okay. Uh, but um, he was my host on my recruiting visit. <laughs> really, man. What was yeah. he like back then? Uh, way different. Really. Um, still great dude. Uh, yeah. like an amazing. But was um, he as jacked? Like muscular? Yeah, 
well, BK, uh, BK is he's kind of the skinny one, right? Uh, or, I don't know. I just, or, uh, my okay. mind are both just jacked. Because uh, Tyler's, Tyler's like jacked. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, it was just like he, he was sweet dude. Uh, and they obviously knew that I was interested in music. And so they paired me with him because he was doing music business and playing baseball as well. Um, so yeah, it was like, I remember going, like he would hit up the baseball team, whoever's on the baseball team when they were just getting started and invite, invite us like all, like on a Facebook invite to his new band called Florida Georgia Line. And like at the time <laughs> he was doing like pop music. Um, so like for him to kind of get thrown into the country world, I was like, this is so odd. Um, but one of the show and it was, it was awesome. It was like fun, fun to watch. And obviously with Cruz and it being like the sensation that it was just like, them kind of blowing up overnight, which is like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. What is it about that school and people coming out of there? Because the coins, coins come there yeah. too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's the music city. So sure. I think that has a big part to do with it. But the music program at Belmont is also kind of well known and um, it's a school that's growing a lot. So I know, I mean, for all of us, really, we went there um, just to be in that environment of like, there's a lot of people doing music and um, kind of going for it and a lot of energy around that. Um, me and Nate studied guitar for the first year we were there and then we switched over to banjo and mandolin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of that energy of like, there's people around you that are your friends and they're, um, they're going for music and like, there's this like positive, like kind of make each other better, um, competitiveness, but also like you're rooting for each other. Yeah. When you're around all that stuff, it's just like, just just by virtue of just seeing how hard other people are working and you just begin to work harder. I always think that's Does kind of inspiring. have here. a strong belief they're going to make it too? Because I think it's so rare to be successful in your industry. Well, I, I think so. And um, one of the things, you know, when we get asked, like, what advice would you give an aspiring musician or something like that? It's just um, no matter what you're pursuing, whether it's art, music, being a doctor, accountant, anything like that, you... It takes a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of failure and getting back up and trying again. And being in a place like Belmont, um, you know, it's like, it's almost like everyone is failing all the time together, <laughs> pursuing the same dream. And you're inspired by each person that gets back up and tries again and is constantly pushing. So it wasn't, I think it'd be a lot easier, you know, if you're in some random town and we're the only band at the college that not getting the traction. And it's just like, well, okay, maybe we should try something else. But like, when we have that show that only five people show up at in Louisville, which is two hours away and you come back, you're like, no one came and they're like, it's okay, man. We have the same thing too. <laughs> exact like, same thing's happening to everybody. Um, yeah. and, but we're still after it and still pushing each other. And there is that competitive aspect, but it's also a very supportive culture. And so you mentioned like coin and, you know, we're talking about Florida, Georgia line, and these people that we know that we can both be inspired by and inspire them hopefully too, to continue to pushing on. And um, it's, it's a very exciting and cool culture to be in and, but I think it was just very helpful to be reminded, like, it's okay. We still believe in you, and we're still going to push after this. And Yeah. yeah well, you, you kind of got to it earlier, but just taking notes from the bands you're playing. That's, that's like, the best thing about being around people that are hard workers and talented. It's just, like, you just, okay, I'm going to steal that little thing. I'm going to steal this little thing. And uh, we still do that, right? Like, our band is just, like, right from the beginning, we're like, oh, I'm stealing that line. That's a cool line to say. Like, you know, oh, okay, that, that bit, that live bit, going to take that. And then, yeah, it just as long as you're learning. Like, what is that uh, quote? It's like, uh, "Good art is original, great art is stolen." Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Keith Richards said, "Yeah, all, all the uh, good ones borrow and all the great ones steal." Yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, you know, you mentioned sort of comparing the idea of being a musician to maybe a doctor or a lawyer. I find in those other careers, though, there's sort of like a path. It's like, oh, you go to school, you get this diploma. There's benchmarks that eventually make you a professional. With music, it's so unknowable and subjective, and you're sort of at the whim of other people, um, which can become discouraging if only five people show up in Louisville. Was there ever a point where you guys were like, oh, man, you know, like maybe this isn't going to happen? Or was it like kind of like, like, was there ever a thought like this is what I'll do if music doesn't work out? I think that's definitely a thought that I had. Um, yeah? Uh, yeah, just because, you know, the music, it's, it's no, like, uh, secret that it's it's hard to break it. I mean, e- e- like, break through. And um, I think even being at Belmont, you know, there is that, like, sonic reality of, like, everybody's kind of around you is, like, pursuing it. But there's also a thing that's, like, what would be called, like, a, a sonic, uh, the Belmont bubble. Yeah. To where it was kind of hard to get out of because they have you know what 50 belmont bands and there's thousands of bands in nashville and so there's not only the nashville bubble but there's the belmont bubble as well if you go to school there it's like oh yeah we we yeah, we're playing at the curb you know the the cafe that's like near the um it's like the on-campus cafe it's like yeah we play that awesome well you gotta travel you know it's kind of hard to get out so like yeah. i think um moments I, I could think especially maybe even that Louisville moment was like a moment was like literally five people showed up and they were all like on the guest list yeah and that, that's like no joke that they, they it sure. was five people and it was a family of friends um and I think we were still kind of at that fiery state of that bands ran just like we're young we're like just hopping in a van you know didn't have like necessarily like we're all single like just like nothing to like really anchor us back home yeah um, so I'm just glad that it happened in that moment, but there's definitely been moments like in our career that's like, Oh, like, is our music actually even connected with anybody other than like our friends in Nashville? Yeah. Uh, your immediate that are circle. Supportive. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, so yeah, there's definitely those moments, but I like to think like Nate's dad, it's like the ones that can take those moments and like see the beauty in them. And we kind of always had this rule is like, uh, we, if we don't go like, super hard and play like an amazing show for this family of five that came, then we don't deserve that headline Bonnaroo set like later in our career. Like we, we, we got to earn it right here. So that's kind of like our, been our mentality ever since the beginning. Uh, you guys mentioned uh, Nashville and you know, I think for outsiders, it's sort of predominantly like country. Is it on the inside? That's, is it a country place like country music? I don't think it necessarily is. I think, um, obviously that's the root of it. And there is a ton of that going on, but um, there's also a ton of other genres happening, um, which is super cool to see, like, especially coming from Chicago myself um, and then Nate coming from Colorado, like, not maybe not necessarily looking to, like, play country music. Yeah. Um, but there's tons of people, especially at in a college setting where people come from all over um to go to college there, um, there's tons of different genres happening. So they're bringing stuff with them and yeah. their own stuff. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm actually a, a massive uh, basketball fan. I'm wearing a Raptor shirt right now. So I listen to JJ Reddick's podcast. Nice. <laughs> you guys all just kind of laugh. So that's how I first actually heard about you guys was through JJ Reddick because he's a big fan of you guys. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And I saw that uh, when you guys were in Philly. I'm not sure. Do all three of you sort of run the Twitter account? What's the deal? It's mostly juice on Twitter. Yeah, you got that? Mm. You tweeted at him and you're like, hey man, heard the shout out. Has there yeah. been any talk since that? Then? Yeah, so we've, we've actually texted back and forth now and because uh, me being a basketball player in, in high school, um, he was kind of, I think like my eighth grade. I, I don't, I can't fully remember like as far as dates go, but like I, 
when he was at Duke and just kind of like the sensation, like yeah. blowing up the three pointers and um, I, my style of play obviously wasn't as good as he was, but was kind of similar. Like just a little white a, guy shooter. Yeah. yeah. Coming yeah. off screens. Yeah. Coming off Catching screens. Catching that ball and checking yeah. it out. Being antagonistic threes. to everybody yeah. in the stands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shooting away too many threes. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So he was kind of like a hero of mine when I was younger. And uh, yeah, when we, we heard it through like a friend, like friend texted me, was like, dude, JJ Reddit just mentioned you on his podcast. And I've actually started listening to that podcast as well. He's good, man. He's like smart, smart, really, really smart. Um, Obviously, he's got a good head on his shoulders and um, but an amazing basketball player. And so um, we try to get him out to the Philly show because I would be like, we have this part at the end of our set where we sing Lean on Me. And if anybody's like a special guest is there, we'll like have him out. I'm stealing that. Yeah, bring it. All right, that's or good. come out, come out tonight. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Either, so like, dude, you know, I mean, sure other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we we invited them, and in, I think they were like out of town playing. You know, have a game out of town, but um, it was really really cool. To, that's amazing to get to know. Yeah, I was like, dude, and he he's actually born, and was born in my hometown. Like, so he was, he was quote unquote friends of families of like so many families back home. So like our first thing was like, you're from Cookville. I was like. Yeah, I'm from Cookville. Make the connections. You're born from Cookville. You know the Hennigans. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. Well, one of the reasons I brought up JJ is because, you know, JJ's always very been kind of open about his faith. And I've read, you know, you guys have said that, you know, you've talked about being Christian, but not necessarily sort of Christian artists or having that sort of be the, I don't want, I don't want to say the main driving force in your music, but maybe like the, the topic of subject all the time. When you started out, was that like a focused discussion about, you know, singing about your faith or how you guys were going to approach that? Or was it just sort of something you sang about yeah i think i think for us we we just kind of discovered like early on that um putting like the christian tag on anything is gonna it's gonna make people think you're a certain you like have a certain belief system that ne- that necessarily like connect with us um for us like we wanted our music to be inclusive and not exclusive uh, we wanted it to be comfortable environment for all walks of life. Um, cause I think at the beginning of our story, we want to make music that like promotes love. And sometimes if you put the Christian, um, like label on sure. what you're doing, uh, people th- think we're would operate out of other experiences that they've had with other Christians, uh, which are not always good. Um, and that's like no secret either. And so like we, we wanted to just, uh, it was kind of intentional. Like we met, we were like, we just want to make our, music honest about who we are and not put like any type of tag on it so that way if somebody's listening to it they don't judge us for you know who we are either like we can just write songs because we're going through shitty things and uh that sucks but at the end of the day like we we wanted to bring all sorts of people together and i think um when we had that meeting it was very apparent that that's like what we were about um so it's still like at the core of like who we are of course and um uh, and probably comes to the music in some ways. Um, but yeah, as, as far as like what we want to do, we just want to make good music. Yeah. It's a fascinating thought because it's like you said, you don't want people bringing preconceived notions to a song, right? Like if that's the first thing they're thinking, they're going to view it through a certain prism. It's almost like experience it pure, but then, I, and I guess, and maybe this would be a question maybe for like Christian base or following, but is, is, is there a little bit that's kind of like looked down on the fact that you aren't more vocal or aren't like spreading the word sort of in a more sort of obvious way? Oh, I, yeah. I think after like after a little bit, like we definitely caught like a lot of flack for that's what I'm getting from the yeah. Christian community. Yes. Yeah. Saying fly the flag a little harder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah like, sure. what are you doing? Are you or don't pull back? Yeah. Or like, you know, like them kind of judging us on like who we are as people. And uh, 
Yeah, I think we definitely kind of caught that flack early on, and uh, it was something that we just kind of just had to ignore. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, it's one of those things too. Like, I, I imagine like we could think back to when we were younger or less experienced with life in general, and just like maybe having similar thoughts looking at other people too. And absolutely, when I've thrown judgment on folks that now being in the position we're in, like, can completely understand either where they're coming from or how they felt in that position in time. And I, I think. I mean, just going off what you're saying, it's like we're still Christians. We still believe in those things, but it's so much more about including everybody and making them feel known and wanted, which I think is at the core of what Christianity would be. But it's not so much like shoving down your throat, like this is our belief. This is a particular message. It's more so making everyone feel like they deserve to be treated with honor and respect and um, intentionality. And that's that's more of, I think, the what we're going for as opposed to a particular message, I guess. Well, I feel like a band that a Christian band that does this, like probably the best is U2. Like they're like, they, they're people don't consider U2 like a Christian rock band, but, and I'm like the biggest U2 fan, but like, if you listen close and you read some interviews, it's like, that's all like music to celebrate these values, you know, under the umbrella uh, of the Christian faith. So the Catholic faith, I guess. But, uh, yeah. And they have a great way of like doing what you said is like kind of making feel everybody included and relating to people as opposed to alienating people. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. Bono, I think in one of his interviews uh, quoted like a Martin Luther quote and he said, Martin Luther said, um, if you're a Christian and you're a shoemaker, your job as a Christian is not to put a cross on every shoe. It's just to make good shoes. And so we, that's what we kind of aspire to be like with, with our music is we, we're not trying to put, any type of uh, stamp or impose our belief system on anybody that doesn't believe uh, in what we do. Uh, we just want to make good music at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, you know, it, interesting because all this sort of plays into the idea of platform as well. And I think artists and, and musicians, they tend to sort of, you know, be associated with liberal causes in general. And I mean, you guys are a band from Red State, and I'm sure your fans are from literally all over the political spectrum. Are you guys very conscious of that when you want to speak on, you know, maybe issues of the day? Because we're obviously living in very polarized uh, social time right now uh, all over the world, but specifically in your country. Yeah, I, I think that's the beautiful thing about like what music can do. And I think that's what we're kind of about is um, like politics uh, in, you know, belief systems, religions, like what we're talking about yeah. are so divisive. Uh, and it, it literally can turn into the biggest like crapshoot in in like a, on a family dinner table like you know Tears i mean everybody apart. is everybody thinks a certain way and especially like when you're 25 to 30 and your thoughts are already kind of made up about the world and um you know it, it's it's like one of those things but i think what we're trying to do with our music is kind of just say like look we're different and that's cool like we're we are nobody in this room at this concert in toronto is is like the the next one i mean everybody's history is everybody's um belief systems everybody's blah blah blahs and i think the one beautiful thing that music can do is uh bring people together and uh kind of in a night of unity uh feel like family uh, that's why sports sport. is the best too you know yeah. sports the same yeah. way uh, you know that's yeah. the same thing yeah but there's those i mean that say and we talked about this on, on our podcast before you know someone like timberlake's criticized for you know not necessarily saying anything in his music about the times or Taylor Swift, for instance. And that's neither a bad thing or a good thing. It's just sort of a reality situation. But there's those that would say with a platform comes a responsibility. 
And then there's people that say, no, I'm an artist. I'm putting out music and I want you to be happy and dance and feel good for an hour or however long the show is. And I don't want to say anything. Where do you guys fall on the responsibility of those with a platform? Uh, yeah, I, um, I think it's just so important. I think we hopefully come across doing a good job of this, but like being aware that there are issues to talk about and there are things that need to be believed in and supported. And I think, you know, being in a band also, as opposed to a Justin Timberlake or Taylor Swift, that's like the one person where uh, right. they can have their own they speak for idea. Themselves. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's acknowledging that even between the three of us in our more collective like business and brand and like, there's so many opinions and ideas even within that. So it allows for a cool way to learn from each other. And, um, but as we're, you know, doing interviews and writing songs and all that. And I, I love too, with what you said with those folks, it's like, yes, we have that platform, but choosing to use that platform to bring people together and like, not necessarily an escape, but like, let's put all the other stuff away and aside and let's all remember that like, we're in this together and there are good things to celebrate and not necessarily promoting things that everyone else already hears and deals with. Sure. Like let's give a platform an idea for in a place for people to come and be together. And not who's the most part. contrarian of the band. when you guys like <laughs> band debates, cause I can tell you it's Nick in our band, no matter what I say, <laughs> your bass player. Yeah. He's something um, else. I, I don't know. Like me, me and Nate are definitely the most like opinionated. Right. <laughs> um, He's kind of like the, he's like a good mediator. The moderator? Yeah, yeah. Brian's been pretty quiet, just chilling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, me and Nate are definitely kind of the, the strong, stronger personalities as far as, um, like, yeah, what we're, like, whether it be a song we're choosing for the set list or um, making a business decision. Well, now that you guys are three, it actually, you have a tiebreaker whenever there is a band debate. <laughs> oh, right? yeah. Like, it's yeah. like whenever there's like a band of four, it's like, oh, this is going to be, you know, it's, it could always go down the middle. Yeah, there's two yeah. and two, but there's like a, there's like, like there can be like a loneliness if there's like one person that's not in agreement with ah, the two. So it's yeah. kind of like a, it's a, it's a good thing, but also kind of a can be a negative thing too. <laughs> the longer you guys are together, do you find that uh, you're getting stronger as far as the interpersonal dynamics, or do you find it's getting more difficult because you just know each other so well? You know, we're, t- we're just talking about this the other day. Like we've in our career, we've really only had like one or like standout like band fight to me like uh and it was really honestly just the way we were communicating was so different like you know you're in a band just like it is with anything it's like when you're in a band you're especially starting out you're in a van and trailer and uh you're in there with seven other dudes and you're living together you're living out of a van you're traveling hours beyond hours together you're going and playing to the shows together for five people and Mm. Um, not making any money and uh, you're like just learning a lot. So there's in those times like confrontation is like everything. I mean, you're like, you're needing to have confrontation if you're like actually living like healthy and like me and me and Brian are like more like we didn't really ne- like we we're kind of anti-confrontational people mm. and um, Nate's like a healthy confrontation like is like just wants to get to the bottom of it. It's not like going to linger on. I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not going to let it fester. I'm going to say what's on my mind. Yeah, yeah. And Thank so, you for saying healthy. That's that's, nice <laughs> <way to answer. laughs> that's a good qualifier. Yeah. Well, um, well, yeah. Because like, if you, you know, you say confrontation in a certain light, then people are going to think that Nate's just kind of a butt. But that's not true. Like, yeah. he's he's super sweet. Um, so yeah, we I think we've what we've gotten like really really, bet like much better at is the confrontation side. So we I kind of know how. Brian operates. I kind of know how Nate operates and I'm not going to be offended if Nate says a certain thing that's like super honest and it's just like, whoa, 
Um, and I'm not going to be, I'm going to know I need to get some stuff out of Brian for him to actually, you know, say what is on his mind. I guess right. that makes sense. Uh, so we've gotten better at it. Yeah. And I think a large part of that is just knowing like we've been in this long enough to, I felt this way, especially at the beginning, we're sort of like, I don't know if we trust each other enough to believe that we have good intentions behind those conflicts or when we disagree on things, but like now being where we are in the journey, knowing that like, even when we disagree or if there is a big blowout, like none of us are sitting there like, I hate that person. I don't believe in them. I don't want to do this with them. Like we're, we've been through enough to know that like, no matter what we go through, it's going to, I think we honestly believe in each other. And at the end of the day are just trying to figure out the best possible way to reach the same goal. Um, so it's, it's, even those points where we are upset, it's like, I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me. And I hope you believe that I love you. It's like that kind of thing where you have it's to great. figure that out. And um, I think that's had a, like, as we've all gotten into relationships too, like our conflict management, I've seen so many ways where it's been fruitful and mm-hmm. our relationships with their ladies. And then also with them coming back and be like, my girlfriend helped me see something about me that I'm sorry that I treated you that way. Legitimately. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've had other, we just had churches in here and you know, they were talking about the idea that when you believe the people that you work with and you're spending every day with their intentions are pure, then the conflict is fine. Cause you don't think they're coming from a place that's selfish or like they're trying to get right. something. It's like, Oh, there's a reason that they're saying this or this is bothering them or they want to change this. It's like, cause you believe yeah. they're coming from a pure place and they care enough to like not let it, fester and yeah. become bitter like let's figure this out and let's get to a place of purity in that you also know like the rhythms of the day a little bit better like we used to get into band conversations like when we first got in the van leaving the hotel and like no one's had a coffee yet and no one was making any sense <laughs> like it was incoherent i'm like all right guys i think let's shut this down for like half an hour <laughs> we'll get some coffee have a little, have a little yogurt and all right and then we can you know we're ready to talk yeah. right like there's certain times of the day on tour where it's like it's just pointless to have a conversation because people are tired or a little burnt out or something. So it's yeah, just like no finding one, those moments yeah. where everyone's like of sound mind. Yeah, we, we found like before the show, like we the fight that we had was like before the show, and we didn't resolve it before the show. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> that, that was the I think yeah the only, the only show, show that did we it show up on back. stage. Oh, like, we weren't like any of us made eye contact. We weren't even like, looking it at each just, other. Like, wow. Like, and, like, looking at the crowd look like, like our, the we, rest of the we band. Connect, we weren't you know, looking at each other. Like, we're looking at each other. It was very, very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's uh, funny. We don't actually, after the show, we don't talk about anything. Any constructive criticism does not happen immediately after the show. Wait till the next morning because you're so. F- fired up when you get off stage if there's like something that's and it's so vulnerable right? so everyone's so vulnerable so it's like just uh, yeah. get some sleep yeah. good night's rest have a coffee and then we can talk about the things that might have been bothering us you know 12 I hours earlier say it right, right after we get off stage. well that that's I had to learn that like <laughs> that was one of those things like I, there was a particular moment we were in Sweden and playing a festival and like Judah I think halfway through the set just called an audible and we're at the oh. point where like we don't have really the logistics to like or an audible at that point is very hard to pull off in some circumstances yeah. where now like I've got enough banjos and we have a tech that can kind of like help like <laughs> pull everything off and be aware like on the ears behind the scenes and everything. But it was like, didn't make any announcement other than, like, all right, we're starting ban- the song. And you like, <laughs> when it was like, was, like his banjo for like the first, like I missed the entire song. Essentially, oh, uh, just, like, yeah. <laughs> Our guitarist Mike has had some very stern conversations with me because yeah. I'm the audible calling guy in the band. And it's, and, and like at one point it's like, Max, this really makes the show not fun for me. And yeah. it, it makes the show suffer, and we have to have a conversation about this. Right. I was, I was like, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things you learn and figure out. One that, like, 
when you do have those things that the show still goes on and people tend to love it. And so there's a fact of like, I used to feel like anything that went wrong ruined the show and mm-hmm. it ruined my vibe. But now it's like, we can get through it all, but it's just also sort of like, I don't feel like I'm my best self when we do those things. Can we at least figure out a better way to do it? But essentially what we're talking about is like, we got off stage and I was like, don't do that. Like (laughs) this is the worst. And he just like shut down and I totally understand that now. And so it's figuring out more of when is the right time to acknowledge when things need to, at least Mm -hmm. not that I was right. And that he shouldn't have called an audible, but at least like when we have those times where we can, it sounds like a new podcast. We should start it together. It's like a band counseling. (laughs) (laughs) The Arkells and Jude in the line. This is good. Finding the right time to address what needs to be addressed. And yeah, Best results. Well, it'll it'll be a big hit at Belmont for all those young bands. So. Yeah, that's right. We'll do a speaking series. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much Bye. for your time. We really appreciate it. Welcome to the dessert. Uh, not only are we joined by our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham, but we are also in the time between recording the opening and now here in the dessert, Max has magically ended up in Europe. Man, time flies. That's right. Hey, guys. <laughs> so you're on the phone right now, Max, uh, from somewhere in Europe. Yes, yeah, somewhere in Europe. Undisclosed location. Shaney, what do you got for us? Okay, so I've been kind of toying with the idea of... Uh, maybe drinking again for a one night only uh, <laughs> diaper party. Uh, before the uh, for the big birth, I figured everyone's having this big diaper party for me. So that's right for our listeners. I, I this thing that we've done this before for our friend mm-hmm. Jug uh, Shane. You are having a baby, so all of a sudden my brother popped up a Facebook group, and we are celebrating in about a week from now uh, the impending birth of Lucy by giving you like. A countless number of diapers. It's true. So I was like, geez, it's going to look kind of bad if I just show up like a sober dope <laughs> and say his thanks and then sayonara with all the diapers, right? So I'm like, I'm not that it's some big gift that you guys are honored in my drunkenness, but I was like, oh, it'll be a good, fun thing to party with the boys again. And then, uh, how long has it been since we've had a drink been, together? I believe it, it's been eight months, over eight months. Wow. Because everyone, uh, especially people in Alex's family, the parents and all that, they're like, uh, I'm so proud of you kind of thing. You're such a good guy. And you start coming off really good when you when you do this sobriety thing. <laughs> so I was a little <laughs> hesitant to bring it up with the in-laws. And, uh, and then awkwardly at dinner, my wife, when we were talking about the diaper party, she goes like, yeah, Shane's going to drink again for it. And I was like, you, can you keep that down? Like, I'll tell that on my own accord, Missy. <laughs> Pardon my French at the table. But. That's my news to share. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, I, I started feeling a little bit guilty about it. What did the family react like in the moment? Uh, the, the dad has very poor hearing, so John Lamparski. Uh, so he kind of just smiled and like, he kind of was like, oh yeah, but I don't think you really heard. <laughs> But then, okay, so that's great, Shane. But he did hear that uh, we are having a diaper party. He's like, oh, yeah, so who's going? And I was like, oh, geez, I kind of have to throw an invite out here. (laughs) But then I'm remembering in the invite group, I made a comment like, guys, can't wait to party with you fuckers or something. (laughs) Like, I'm going to, this was supposed to be a surprise, but I'm going to drink. Fuck it. And I'm like, geez, I don't want to add him to this Facebook group. So I'm like, I'll just add him like audibly or whatever. Like you mean ask him. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, not electronically, I'm trying to say. Okay. And then Greg starts adding in all this like crucial information, I guess, like as crucial as information could be for a diaper party. And uh, I'm like, geez, like John's going to feel kind of left out of the loop if he doesn't have his $25 that he's supposed to give. And he might come with diapers, but he's not supposed to. So then I add, because I add John to the group, the Facebook invite group. But I'm like, oh, there's enough space in between messages where it's probably not going to scan the whole group. <laughs> but then all of a sudden I get a notification and it's like, John has liked your comment. And it was my anti, uh, my comment about how I'm going to start drinking again. Oh. So it's kind of, oh, but no. it's, okay. more, it's less of a, I approve of this message and more of a, I see what you're doing, Buster. <laughs> Would you ever call him dad? He's your father. Yeah, yeah. I call him dad all the time. Really? Yeah. Wow. Really? Yeah, me and John are close. Like, uh, he drove me, um, I'll get into why, but he, he drove me to work the other day. And I was, I asked, I told you and your brother just casually about it. And your brother, first thing he said is, oh my God, that must've been so awkward. What did you talk about? <laughs> and then I told you and you go, oh man, was that awkward? <laughs> but John isn't awkward. I don't know. Like I'm awkward with almost everyone, but, uh, I don't know. I guess cause he shares the same genes as Alex. We have a good relationship. Uh, dad or daddy? I call it, depending on the situation, I call him daddy and son, but this is a private matter. Daddy, can I get a drive to work? <laughs> Anything for you, shady boy. All right, this is weird now. But point is, I, I, was, uh, I was feeling guilty and everyone's always like, uh, karma's a bitch and stuff. At least in the reality shows I watch, that's what they say a lot. And then um, I started getting really paranoid about getting an injury, mm. uh, playing basketball. And I started, I started having like, I, it's not a dream. It's not a daydream, but it's kind of like a day nightmare where I break my ankle playing basketball. And for some reason, Alex gives birth on the same day that I break my ankle. And then I'm unable to look after my daughter. Mm. I was like, this is a nightmare. Mm. So I was like, no more basketball. I made just a rule. I'm just going to go to the gym and that'll be my uh, regimen. And then we get a message in our little basketball group. Uh, Mikey, you going to play today? And Mike <laughs> hasn't played fucking basketball in like eight months pretty much, it seems like to me at least. It's hard to get out and hoop, uh, I find. like Because uh, a lot of guys will go to the gym. I, I just I haven't had time. But I, you know I love playing. I just haven't been able to. But our gang, you guys still go all the time. So Mike says... Uh, yeah, I'm in today. And everyone's like, whoa, this is a special day and making it a big event. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, one more. I'm, this is going to be my last time playing ball before I have my daughter. And then I'm trying to be super aware of every move I do, which isn't always a good move when you're playing basketball. You should kind of go with your instincts and be confident. And you don't not, want to be thinking about you it. You don't want to play timid. No. And then I start playing kind of shit. And I'm very competitive, and now my body's not keeping up with my brain anymore, so I'm more competitive than I am athletic. And uh, <laughs> there was this Italian guy who was kind of telling me how to play defense, and he's and I swiped the ball away from this guy, and he's like, hey, you should not do that because that is actually a foul. <laughs> and I was like, I'll show you a foul. <laughs> and then the next time this guy went up for a layup, I went to stuff him, and I jumped way higher than I normally do. And on my way down, I started thinking about how to land, which isn't good. You should just land how you land. And I landed on the complete side of my ankle. And there was this crazy pop, rip, tear noise that I've never heard <sighs> my body do. And I just hit the ground. And it looks like I felt like I was going to vomit. And I'm like, fuck, I've broken my ankle. Like it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And now I'm fucked. And then uh, you got a baby on the way. Yeah. And now I'm the baby that's here. 
uh, because I can't do shit. So I've, I've basically, I fractured my ankle. I'm still waiting to go on the fracture yeah. clinic, but I've been on crutches for over a week now. In the gym, like everybody stopped playing right away. Anytime you've rolled it before, you're just angry or you're going, oh, you're making a noise. Mm-hmm. This time you just, your eyes were real wide and you looked frightened. And it was like, it sounds weird, but it was like we went into like a weird world the second my uh, ankle broke, like reality felt so different to me. And I, I guess it was this total state of shock. But these guys we play with, they're kind of like hardcore, not thugs, but they're kind of like tough guys. Mm-hmm. And like they, for ex- for example, they have stolen my basketball before. <laughs> and I've labeled my basket. <laughs> I've labeled my basket. You immediately called John, daddy, can you get my ball back? <laughs> Be right there, shiny boy. <laughs> But I label my basketball with my name. It just says like SEC 1983 on my ball. But these guys one day, they stole my ball, took it home and markered over it <laughs> and then still had the audacity to bring it. it. Shows how much of a wimp I am. They just bring it. And I'm playing with like my stolen ball now. Point is, these guys are kind of like that type of like street tough. So all of a sudden, when I break my ankle, they start having this weird conversation of if Superman's the best superhero and they get up all in our face and they start doing a poll on DC comics and all this. And I'm really like, did I die in that fall and go to like some weird universe? (laughs) Is is that your version of hell? Hanging with guys arguing about whether Superman's the best superhero? Well, because as you know, I hate superhero movies. So I'm like, I don't not want to participate in this fucking conversation. And guys, I just broke my fucking ankle. Could I have my ball back, please? I know you stole it. (laughs) I kind of want to come clean with everything. But uh, you know what Superman wouldn't do? He wouldn't steal somebody's ball. uh, Well, he is the man of steel. (laughs) Spelled differently. (laughs) That was a good setup. Yeah. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much to everyone that uh, mixes this podcast. It's a rotating crew of angels, and we are very thankful that you make it sound good on a weekly basis. The Michael Munch Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.